You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 133 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, we are going to listen to Terence McKenna talk about the mysterious Voynich manuscript. I could talk a bit about what this manuscript is, but uh, that is exactly what Terence is about to do. So it's better to leave that bit for him. He knows more about it than me anyway. One thing I want to say though is that I've edited this talk quite a bit because there is a woman in the audience who keeps interrupting Terence with lots of questions that ruin his flow. I could not erase her utterly from the talk because sometimes it doesn't make sense unless you hear her remarks, but uh, I managed to expel at least 90% of her. Today I'm going to be discussing the Vonich Manuscript, which is certainly one of the most interesting and has been called the most mysterious manuscript in the world. I will describe the physical manuscript, place it in a historical context, and then discuss my own ideas about the people who may have been uh, its authors. First of all, the manuscript itself is written in a language of which no other example is known to exist. It is a alphabetic script, but of an alphabet variously reckoned to have from 19 to 28 letters, none of which bearing any relationship to any uh, English or European letter system. The manuscript is small, 7 by 10 inches, but thick, nearly 170 pages, closely written in a free-running hand, copiously illustrated with bizarre line drawings that have been watercolored, drawings of plants, drawings of little naked ladies appearing to take showers in a strange system of plumbing, which has been variously identified as organs of the body or a primitive set of fountains, and astrological drawings, or what have been interpreted as astrological drawings. But more about all this later. First of all, the known facts of the manuscript are uh, few. They are that it appears in 1586 at the court of Rudolf II of Bavaria, who is one of the most eccentric uh, European monarchs of that or any other period. This is the same Frederick who collected dwarfs, who collected, uh, had a regiment of giants in his army. He was surrounded by astrologers. He was fascinated by games and codes and music. He was uh, typical of the occult-oriented Protestant intellectual of this uh, period. Anyway, to his court and among his courtiers came an unknown person who sold this manuscript to the king for 300 gold ducats, which translated into modern monetary units is about $14,000, which is an astonishing amount of money to have been paid uh, for a manuscript at that time, and immediately signals that the emperor must have uh, been highly impressed by this object if he was willing to put out that kind of money for it. Accompanying the manuscript is a letter which states that uh, it is a manuscript of the Englishman Roger Bacon, who flourished in the uh, 13th century and who uh, was a noted pre-Copernican astronomer. Now, at that time in Prague, which was where the court of, uh, of the emperor was being held, uh, the reputation of Roger Bacon was at a great height. The court was a hotbed of alchemy, and among all these alchemists, the reputation of the English monk Roger Bacon was held very high. This is because 
two years previously, the sale of the Vonage manuscript to the emperor being uh, dated to 1586. Two years previously, John Dee, the great English navigator, astrologer, uh, magician, intelligence agent, occultist. Wait, I still am back on Frederick. You mean what was his relationship Did you to all this? Him a little bit more. You say it was typical. Well, he was—he epitomized the liberated uh, Northern European prince who was a patron of alchemy, gave money to all these printing presses that were printing all this alchemical literature. Uh, the Rosicrucian conspiracy, about which I will say more later, was fomenting at this very period right under the surface. And uh, Frederick patronized astrologers, magicians, alchemists. The reason John Dee uh, had such a long stay at Frederick's court was because his companion, Edward Kelly, claimed to be able to perform the alchemical opus. And the king more or less placed them under house arrest and asked them, you know, to do this for him as a favor since he had patronized them very heavily. And uh, when they were unable to, uh, Dee was able to talk his way out of it. Kelly had been the one who had made the major claims and he was kept there and actually died in an effort to escape. He fell when the, she the shale roofing on a high parapet of this castle slid way underneath his feet one moonlit night when he was trying to sneak out of the castle. Uh, but I anticipate my story because I think John Dee and Edward Kelly are probably, uh, if they were not the, um, I certainly think they were the people who sold the emperor the Vonich manuscript because of circumstantial evidence. Uh, surrounding their interest in subjects similar to those being covered by the manuscript. And the Vonich manuscript uh, was accompanied by this letter stating that it was a, a Bacon manuscript. And the best astrologers and cryptographers in this court looked at it and could make nothing out of it. And... Uh, it, and along with a great deal of other weird collections and material that Rudolf had gathered together from all over the world, was uh, passed to various people at his death. And this book, because it contained botanical illustrations, passed to his botanist, who was a man named Marsisi. And uh, he had it for 20 years. Then it passed to an unnamed party, who had it for 20 years, and by this time we're up to the 1620s. And then it passed to Athanasius Kircher, who was one of the great polymaths of the mid-17th uh, century. He was a Catholic intellectual, an alchemist, a person who experimented with artificial languages. And before he obtained the Vonich manuscript, we know of letters of his to various people asking about it. And in fact, he was sent small portions of it reproduced that he struggled over. But once he actually had the manuscript in his possession, his diaries are silent about it. And he says nothing, even though five years after he acquired it, he published a book called The Universal Study of Artificial Languages that nowhere mentions the Vonich manuscript. And he became a, decided to become a Jesuit in about 1660 and uh, had to give away all of his worldly goods. So he gave uh, his library to this Jesuit seminary south of Rome. And in among his books was the Vonich Manuscript. And it sat on a shelf in the seminary from 1660, 1760, 1860, 1960, 280 years till Alfred Vonich, a New York book dealer, bought the entire library on a trip to Europe in 1912. And when he got it all back to New York and sorted through it, among all this easily cataloged late Renaissance Italian theological material was this peculiar book. 
more than peculiar, totally anomalous book. And uh, it's very strange because uh, the store of images, uh, even as late as the period when we first hear of the Vonich manuscript in the 1580s, the store of images in the European mind was very limited. For instance, uh, in speaking of the biological sections of the Vonich manuscript, here you get 120 drawings of plants. And yet there were only 10 or 15 herbals in circulation among the educated people of Europe of that time. And none of the Vonich images can be directly traced to any of these previously uh, printed or circulated manuscripts. Likewise, the script itself, it has no antecedents and it spawned no imitators. Codes from the early 16th century onward were, in Europe, were all derived from a book called the Stenographica of Johannes Trithemius, Bishop of Sponheim, who was an alchemist of Sponheim, who was... wrote on the encipherment of secret messages and he had about three methods and no military or alchemical or religious or political code was composed by any other means throughout a period which lasted well into the 17th century. Yet the Vonich manuscript does not appear to have any uh, any relationship to the Trithemian codes. Uh, the codes derivative of Johannes Trithemius, Bishop of Sponheim. There's a book by Walker called Spiritual and Demonic Magic from Facino to Campanella that covers all of this very well. Or Francis Yates' book, uh, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment. More about D and why I think that D is the obvious candidate for uh, being the author or being the purveyor, if not the author, of uh, the Vonich manuscript. D, first of all, Trithemius' book, The Stenographica, didn't circulate in as a printed book until uh, the 1580s, but it circulated in manuscript form from about 1530 onward. And when Dee visited the continent as a fairly young man, he records in his diary that he spent three days hand-copying the relevant chapters of a manuscript copy of The Stenographica that he was shown in Paris. So from very early in his intellectual life, he was in possession of the Trithemian code-making machinery. The next important event in his life for my argument, and one of the most puzzling events in the whole history of science generally, is the afternoon in July of 1582 when at Mortlake in his study, John Dee was distracted by a brilliant light outside his window and stepped outside to receive from a creature he described as the angel Gabriel a uh, polished lens of Lancasterian coal, which he described in his diary from thenceforward as the shoe stone. (laughs) That's S-H-E-W. The shoe stone. And... uh, He was able, by meditating on this stone, to induce uh, visions and dialogues with spirits. However, uh, this ability seemed to fade in the months after he received the stone until a strange personage came into his life in the spring of uh, 1584, and this was uh, Edward Kelly. Now, Kelly was a much younger man than Dee, and Dee was married to a much younger woman, Anne Dee. And Kelly was uh, of the uh, rascal class, and he, in fact, in one account is described as being earless, having had his ears removed for some uh, petty crime in the provinces. Anyway, he arrived at Dee's place in Mortlake, pop-eyed and breathless, with a wild story about how he had fallen asleep in a ramsacked 
tomb in a monastery in Wales. And when he had awakened, beneath him in the tomb had been a vial of red powder, which was the transformative elixir, and a book in an undecipherable language. Um, which he called the diary, uh, sorry, the Gospel of St. Dunstable, and said that he had been told around in the village that it was in ciphered Welsh. Now, we actually hear no more in anybody's diaries or letters of the Gospel of St. Dunstable. However, Arthur Dee, the son of John Dee, writing some 30 years later and reminiscing about his father, said that from the time he met Kelly, he spent a great deal of time uh, trying to unravel a book called Covered All Over with Hieroglyphics. <laughs> And uh, perhaps this is the diary or the gospel of St. Dunstable, and perhaps it is, in fact, the Vonich manuscript, and that these two things are the same thing. In any case, uh, Kelly's entree to D was the undecipherable manuscript and the alchemical potion. And he quickly, uh, from his conversations with D, uh, determined the story about the showstone and they set up a seance situation and Kelly proved himself to be a very adept scryer of the stone. So then begins a period in Dee's diaries which have been, were published in 1658 by Marie Casabon as a true and faithful relation. Uh, a series of diary entries that span the next ten years, dozens, hundreds of spirit conversations and the delivering unto Dee and Kelly of an angelologic language called Enochian, which was composed of non-English uh, letters, but which computer analysis has recently shown has a curious grammatical relationship to English. But over 4,000 words are known in Enochian, and they were transmitted by the ghostly apparitions which Kelly channeled to D and D and some of the messages were uh, theological in nature many were political and uh, came to them as they traveled about Europe including visiting the court of Rudolf II of Bavaria our man who was sold the Vonich manuscript and they were the people who were responsible for telling everyone what a great alchemist Roger Bacon the English monk had been they laid the public relations groundwork for turning this manuscript at a high premium I maintain in any case, uh, the several groups that have studied the Vonich manuscript have not looked at the amounts of encrypted material in John Dee's diaries, of which there's over 92 pages of strings of numbers and letters, which if it were found to be encoded in the same way that the Vonich material is encoded, um, that would definitely solve the problem of the authorship of the manuscript. The manuscript, uh, which would have had to have been written in the 13th century, if it were by Roger Bacon, is definitely shows all the physical signs of being a 16th century manuscript. I estimate it was done sometime around 1540. And uh, D, this means Kelly perhaps obtained it somewhere, Otherwise, it would have had to have been done later, as late as the early 1580s. If, if D actually wrote it, then, uh, then it should be possible to determine this, because such large amounts of his encrypted, though still undeciphered, material is uh, on record. Uh, and perhaps now would be the moment to talk about the Rosicrucians and show how they uh, work into all this. 
Dee died an old and broken-hearted man in the under the reign of James the First in 1608, many years after the events of the sale of the Vonage manuscript occurred. Well, he had been the court astronomer of Elizabeth, and the friend of Sir Philip Sidney, and the most educated man in England. When James came to power, James had a total horror of the whole magical side of the Elizabethan court, and he just dismissed this guy as a crank. He didn't want astrologers around him. He thought it was all creepy. He was a rationalist. His anti-Catholicism extended to a mistrust of the entire occult tradition generally. However, uh, early in his flowering period, Dee had written a strange book called the Hieroglyphic Mona, the Monus Hieroglyphicum, which was 36 quasi-geometrical theorems, which actually hinted at some kind of mystical doctrine. And it was just, it's this utterly obscure book. Uh, in the early 1580s, it circulated in manuscript and was printed a few years later. In 1604 and again in 1608, the primary Rosicrucian documents were anonymously circulated in Europe. They were called the Fama and the Confessio, and they came out of nowhere. They were like broadsheets distributed in the middle of the night from street corners. It was, they said, we are a secret society, and who we are, you may not know, but if you're uh, hip enough, you'll be contacted and asked to join. And people like Robert Flood, who was essentially the heir of the D tradition in, in English occultism and science, basically put out advertisements saying, if I ain't good enough, nobody's good enough. Why haven't you people contacted me? <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that uh, the Rosicrucians, meaning the authors of the Fama and the Confessio, never contacted anybody. And their claim was basically fraudulent. It was that uh, the tomb of Christian Rosencrantz, who had lived in the 14th century, again, it's like this harking back to Roger Bacon, but instead harking back to a mythical personage two centuries previously, that the tomb of Christian Rosencrantz, a, a great knight who had gone on the last crusade, had been discovered, and that inside there were all these alchemical books and with a quasi-political overtone definitely favoring the bohemian uh, court of Frederick the Elector Palatine and uh, that all this should be disseminated as gospel. It was a kind of alchemical Protestant revival. But curiously, these texts, the Fama and the Confessio, had many doctrinal similarities to Dee's hieroglyphic monad, so that it appears that Dee either was used as the model for the Rosicrucian conspiracy by its authors, persons unnamed, but I suspect the Czech alchemist Johann Valentin Andrei as probably being the person behind this, because Andrei and Michael Meyer were people who uh, uh, definitely were old enough to have been involved in Dee's earlier visits and have then just been at their intellectual, at the peak of their intellectual powers when the uh, foment that you mentioned of the Winter Kingdom and the bringing of Frederick Elector and his wife to Prague as uh, the king and queen this episode occurred. And in fact, I'll now relate the Vonich manuscript back to all of that. Previously, I mentioned that when Rudolf's king, his court, fell into disarray, the Vonich manuscript passed to his botanist. Well, what was happening was that the old emperor was dying at a great age and mad as a damn hatter, no question about it. <laughs> Meanwhile, to the west, in Bohemia, the Frederick Elector, who is everything a Protestant alchemical prince could hope to be, young, brilliant, scheming, totally in charge of his lords, he weds Elizabeth, the daughter of James I of England. 
and he takes the king's decision to give him his daughter's hand in marriage as uh, tacit approval for his plan to establish an alchemical kingdom, a Protestant alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. Actually, uh, James being the conservative that he was, had a far more uh, Machiavellian purpose in wedding his daughter to Frederick the Elector because he also had it in his mind to wed one of his sons to a Spanish Catholic uh, Habsburg princess and was uh, trying to steer a neutral course when he realized that Frederick and Elizabeth had gone off to uh, to Bohemia, to their court, to be with Michael Meyer and Gerhard Dorn and Johann Andre and all these guys uh, and to uh, patronize these alchemical presses and astrology and all this stuff. He was much alarmed, but by that time it was too late to call it back and he realized that Frederick the Elector was a wild card. When Rudolf finally did die, the uh, princes of the Northern League gathered and chose his successor by secret ballot. Frederick won. And so in the winter, in the late fall of 1619, he and Elizabeth transferred their court to Prague and ruled for one winter. Uh, until May of 1620, uh, the Mayflower was landing in America in the same year, but uh, it had nothing to do with any of this. Uh, then the Habsburgs by that time had mounted an army and uh, were able to crush this thing. In a sense, it can be seen as the opening shot of the Thirty year, Years' War, although the Thirty year well, it was the opening shot of the Thirty Years' War. One of the young French soldiers in this Habsburg army laying siege to the city was the 19-year-old René Descartes, who would grow up to be the great proponent of modern French materialism. Michael Meyer, one of the last great synthesizers of the medieval alchemical vision died in the siege of the city and Frederick was killed and uh, Elizabeth fled she lived in the Hague for many years and so see in that confusion the botanist of Rudolf uh, held in his house somewhere in the suburbs of Prague the Vonich manuscript and the Thirty Years' War comes, modern times overtake Europe, and this thing drifts further and further from its roots. But my reconstruction of what must have happened is uh, that uh, in this period when Dee and Kelly were regaling Rudolf with tales of the alchemical prowess of Roger Bacon, that they... Uh, they ponied up this manuscript. Either they wrote it at that time or they had it with them. If they had it with them, it's a far more interesting story because then perhaps they are not its authors. If they are its authors, then it merely reveals the grammatical deep structure of the deranged mind of an Elizabethan magician. And this would explain to some degree why it was outside the ken of the CIA. But if they didn't write it, if they only had it in their possession, then the mystery continues because where did they get it and what was it? It is true that Dee was under the patronage of the Earl of Northumberland, who, uh, when Henry VIII broke with Rome, all of the English monasteries were sacked by the... Uh, lords who stuck with the king and uh, the Earl of Northumberland sacked monasteries that had large repositories of Bacon material and Dee's library at Mortlake was known to have uh, 53 Baconian manuscripts of which only 41 have survived into modern times. The most interesting thing is this huge book called A True and Faithful Relation which is the day-by-day 
seances with these spirits as Dee and Kelly move all over Europe. It's in that that it's recorded. Oh, and this is a piece of circumstantial evidence I almost left out, that in the very month that the emperor paid the 300 gold ducats for the manuscript, uh, Dee records in his diary that they received 320 gold ducats from a mysterious source. Now, it is true that another angle on Dee's personality, and some biographers have taken the position that he didn't believe in magic at all, that he only posed as a screwball, and that actually he was uh, an intelligence agent for the British crown. He was visiting all these courts as an astrologer and a necromancer and an alchemist, and actually encrypting very succinct military and strategic and diplomatic information into these letters which he was sending home and because he could cast the finest horoscope in Europe he had an entree into all these people's scenes and uh, and the truth lies somewhere in between he was doing all of this he was an agent for the British crown but he was also you know the finest flower of the uh, of the medieval mind he was used by Shakespeare as the model for Prospero in the Tempest and uh, is the model for Dr. Faustus in Christopher Marlowe's version of that classic spellbinder. <laughs> well, it just shows, you know, how tenuous our grip is on what was going on in this time. I mean, besides whether Bacon wrote Shakespeare, then you have the problem of... Uh, things like the Vonich manuscript, Bacon visited Dean. We're now talking about uh, Francis Bacon, who was, who claimed, actually, Roger Bacon uh, as one of his. He yes. did? Oh, yes. I didn't hear that. Oh, yes. That's great. Queen Why Elizabeth and Philip Sidney and uh, Francis Bacon visited John Dee at Mortlake one afternoon to see his library because he had more books than uh, anyone in England. And uh, he is a very, very peculiar person. One of the most interesting things about the Vonich manuscript uh, is uh, the pe people whose careers have floundered, foundered on uh, decipherments, where people have come forward with very bold claims. Uh, this guy, William Romaine Newbery, Newbold, uh, in the 1920s, who was a classic scholar, a medievalist, and by all accounts a very brilliant man, he uh, announced that he had a complete decipherment of the Vonich manuscript and um, said that what it involved was uh, shorthand strokes, tiny strokes that were components of each letter in the Vonage script, and that by staring through a magnifying loop, you could magnify these characters and see that encoded into each one were the distorted remains of a Roman shorthand system that had been lost for 600 years. And he produced uh, astonishing decipherments uh, in which... Um, he definitely thought that it was a Roger Bacon manuscript. He decoded passages that dealt with student uprisings at Oxford at Christmas time, 1292, when uh, the riot between the Blackfriars and the something or other. Just, you know, long, long decipherments. The problem with all of this was that no one else could... Uh, extract the same sense using Professor Newbold's method. His method involved so many choices from pools of letters at every given point along the line that you could demonstrate that hundreds of messages could be extracted. And Professor Newbold died a broken man. He was disgraced. His career shattered. He had gone too far. The Vonich manuscript had claimed its first victim. <laughs> <laughs> 
The next person to advance a decipherment of the Vonich manuscript was uh, Robert S. Brumbaugh, also of Yale University. And uh, his decipherment is in some ways almost as puzzling as the encryption. He would have us believe that the Vonich manuscript says things like, liquid Syrian matter, liquid matter, plus Syrian Sicilian, plus Syrian salt, European Swedish Sicilian, plus Syrian, plus Russian Asian Sicilian, salt, liquid, liquid, Asian Italian Syrian salt, liquid Sicilian Italian, plus Sicilian, plus salt, etc., etc. Um... However, when his method was examined by other people attempting to reproduce the same plain text, they got uh, nowhere, and he, he, uh, it can't be taken seriously. Another effort at decipherment, which is minor, perhaps, in comparison to the other two, but which provides an interesting anecdote, was a man named Strong who was at San Diego, had uh, claimed decipherment of certain of the labels of the illustrations of the Vonich manuscript. And when Paul Lee uh, formed a working group uh, to look into the Vonich manuscript, Dr. Strong was one of the people they wanted to interview. And my friend Ralph Abraham, who's a mathematician at Santa Cruz, uh, had photostats of certain folios of the Vonich manuscript, and he sent very detailed letters to Dr. Strong with these folios as enclosures and questions like, it is alleged that on folio 9b you translated a certain word as uterus. Here is a photostat of folio 9b. Please circle the word you translated, and this kind of thing. And... Uh, Dr. Strong's secretary wrote Ralph back and said that he was very old, he was in his 90s, and he didn't feel he could compose a letter to address all these questions, but that if Ralph would come to San Diego, he would satisfy him completely. Uh, so that was a Thursday. Ralph made a, got a reservation to fly down on uh, the following Monday, and Sunday night, the uh, secretary called and said that Dr. Strong had died of a heart attack that evening. So, the Vonich manuscript uh, has bedeviled people's careers, and uh, people who have claimed to understand it have uh, died with the secret untransmitted to the rest of us. The, the intelligence community inside the United States government has spent a fair bit of time looking into it simply because it is so unusual to come upon a, such a large amount of code from such an early period and have it resist decipherment. I mean, it is just unheard of that a 16th century manuscript could not be deciphered by modern methods. The most interesting thing, in fact, published on the Vonich manuscript is uh, a United States government technical information office publication called The Vonich Manuscript, An Elegant Enigma by Mary D'Imperio. And Mary D'Imperio must be a Renaissance PhD student somewhere who was hired by the government to basically collate everything known about the Vonich manuscript. And uh, some interesting things are known. Eventually, I think, perhaps it will yield, although I'm not sure. For instance, computer analysis of the handwriting in it uh, shows that two hands are involved. It was written by two people. Does this mean it was written by Dee and Kelly? Is this... Uh, the hands that we should look for? Can we then, by comparing it to the handwriting of D and or Kelly, get a further feeling for, uh, for their relationship to it? 
I think that what fascinated me about the Vonage manuscript is above and beyond the historical puzzle, above and beyond how interesting it would be to know what it actually says, since someone went to such great effort to hide what it says, is just the idea of an unreadable book is a kind of Borgesian concept that is attractive. There must be somewhere an unreadable book, and perhaps this is it. And it's almost, uh, I mean, if my analysis of it as being a product of Dee and Kelly has seemed too facile or facile, let me assure you that it is, and that there are, not all the facts are covered by that theory. So much of Dee's writing is known that I think if he had been the author, it would be possible to find that out. Perhaps it is possible to find that out, and we're just premature in our wish for a resolution of it. But the unreadable book the idea that the, the world is information and the way by which we have cognizance of the world is by ordering all the information we come upon through relation to information that we already have accumulated. And an unreadable book in a non-English script with no dictionary attached is very puzzling because we we are like uh, linguistic oysters. We secrete around it. We insist it into our metaphysic, but we don't know what it says, which always carries with it the possibility that... Uh, it says something which would unhinge our conceptions of things, or that its real message is its unsayability. It simply is, uh, it points to the otherness of the nature of information. It's what's called then a limit text, as Finnegan's Wake is a limit text, or uh, it's a term of French structuralist uh, criticism searching the search for limit text. Well, certainly, the Vonage manuscript is the limit text of Western occultism. No one can read it. It is truly an occult book. <laughs> it is like a literalizing of uh, the mythical book in H.P. Lovecraft's work, which is the Necronomicon, the writings of the mad Arab al-Hazrad. And in fact, Colin Wilson, in his book, The Philosopher's Stone, connects the Vonage Manuscript to the Necronomicon. The Shoe Stone, maybe, too? Perhaps the Shoe Stone. Well, the Philosopher's Stone was the Shoe Stone for D, for sure. Right, right. It's very interesting, this business of, uh, of uh, the angelic language in Nakian. Because, as I say, 4,000 words were delivered through the showstone to D. In the 1950s, there was a famous UFO case where a woman who claimed she was in contact with UFOs taught a colonel in the CIA how to be in contact with the same group of saucers. And he was demonstrating this ability for a group of his superiors in a room in the Pentagon. And he asked for a demonstration... He was communicating with them through automatic writing, and they said, go to the window and look out, and they all went to the window and looked out, and there was a brilliant golden disk of light cruising past the Pentagon, and uh, they went berserk, uh, called the nearby Air Force Base to see what was on the scopes, the radar had just gone out in this sector, etc., etc., but what was, to tie it in with my point, <laughs> these messages uh, that this guy was getting on this Ouija board were signed AFFA, AFA, which any scholar of Enochian can tell you is the Enochian word for nothingness, friends. <laughs> it's very interesting. Blake spoke with angels. He was the flower of English poetry at a certain point in time. Dee spoke with angels. He was the flower of English science and... Uh, and mechanics at a certain period, and uh, perhaps the Vonage manuscript uh, is uh, actually a manuscript that is not encrypted at all, but is simply uh, 
a book in a non-human language, and therefore there is no Rosetta Stone to it. It is just utterly uh, beyond the pale, as they say in Ireland. In this, in the uh, summation in this book by De Imperio, where she suggests things that can be done, the first thing she suggests, as being totally obvious, is the physical book should be analyzed because this has never been done. This would settle once and for all at, at least the century of its origin. And, you know, a number of things could be done. The libraries of the world should be searched for other examples of Vonich script. I mean, after all, are we really sure that there's no other extant example of this uh, strange writing? Uh, computer analysis, this has been part of the approach of the Santa Cruz group, is first of all settling on a standard alphabet for Vonich and then cataloging every character and the number of times it occurs and in right. what combinations with other characters. Well, none of the illustrations have ever been satisfactorily interpreted, like what are called the astrological illustrations are only nominally that. They could be anything. They just seem to have stars and circles in them, but otherwise they're not particularly relatable to the sky. The so-called pharmaceutical section, which is all these little canisters and things and these strange little naked women bathing in, these, uh, in all this plumbing, which is called the pharmaceutical or the anatomical section, uh, you know, could be anything. could be an obscure form of central German hydrotherapy or, uh, you know, actually the doodlings of a deranged imagination. <laughs> when you only have one of something, uh, it, it gets quite... Uh gets quite dicey placing it in the correct context in cultural history, especially uh, since there was a lot of secrecy in this period, a lot of people running around faking manuscripts and other people's names, using secret cover languages, uh, communicating in secret codes, plotting secret societies. I mean, this was really the breakup like of the medieval mind, just like today. Yes, well, this hope to establish an, an alchemical political union in Central Europe was in the context of what followed the 30 years and modern times can just be seen as one of those places where the river of history chose not to run. It was uh, path not taken. But had things turned out differently, had the King of England been behind it wholeheartedly, had... Uh, certain things been different, it might have all uh, unraveled somewhat differently. One thing I uh, have thought to do about it is uh, there are now what's called psychic archaeologists, which when all else fails, you bring in these people, and by various means, esoteric and exoteric, they attempt to uh, divine, it. divine what story resides in an object. Since the Vonich manuscript is at the Beneke Rare Book Room at Yale, I'm sure any serious uh, scholar would be allowed to look at it and spend time with it. Uh, I've never seen it. I would like to see it. Uh, the book which Robert Brumbaugh edited called The Most Mysterious Manuscript, which is now out of date in that his conclusions are, cannot be taken seriously. Nevertheless, it, uh, it re reproduces a number of the folios from the manuscript. And uh, when you see them, just the pure weirdness of it all is conveyed quite readily. I mean, it is unearthly. It does not fit in the context of late medieval alchemical manuscripts. Ralph Abraham made the suggestion that Vonich script had some relation to early Brahmanic number systems. He thought perhaps it was a string of numbers that would then have to be decoded from that and then further unencrypted to get sense out of. Um, one thing that might be said about it is perhaps modern people simply overrate the sophistication of our code-breaking machinery. Perhaps there are simple ways of encoding material that simply have not occurred to the CIA. And so uh, when the Vonich 
that text is finally broken, it will be trivial, the way in which it was encrypted trivial, but unexpected in some way. For instance, Ralph made the suggestion to me that uh, grids, where you have a grid which has holes in it when laid over a page shows you the parts of the text which are to be dealt with and all the rest of it is noise. If the grid changes from page to page and is completely irrational in the way it changes, then no computer program imaginable could separate the plain text from the noise because it isn't a recursive formula, it's an ever-changing variable that could be just whim, the whim of how you made the grids. And this would preclude, I think, any machine-oriented effort mm -hmm. to decipher it. Oh, this grid method is known long enough that this may be the key. So that may mean that somewhere there either exist these grids or there exist the instructions for building them. Mm -hmm. And then, out of that, you could extract a portion of Vonage text, which would quickly yield to modern methods of decipherment because it is the only part of the message which is really sensed. This is a standard uh, method of hiding a message is to embed it in great amounts of garbled material. It would have appealed to the alchemical imagination of Dee or Kelly or any of their educated occult contemporaries to use this kind of method. So it's very, uh, it's very interesting. It's very mysterious. It's quite uh, an enigma. This talk was lifted from the Psychedelic Salon. Go to psychedelicsalon.com to find more talks of Terence and a bunch of other great speakers as well. Now for a real classic song called Grinning in Your Face by the artist Sunhouse. And the reason I picked this one is because, in a way, perhaps, this is what the Voynich manuscript is doing. It's grinning in our faces. Like some sort of advanced joke. But who knows? Uh, don't forget to follow and like the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. See you all next Sunday. Freedom is in the mind. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? Don't mind people grinning in your face Yeah, just bear this in mind A true friend is hard to find Don't you mind people grinning in your face You know your mother will talk about you Your sisters and your brothers too Yes, don't care how you're trying to live They'll talk about you still. Yes, but by who is in mind, a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your feet? Don't mind people grinning in your feet. Don't mind people grinning in your feet. Oh, there's bad who is in mind A true friend is hard to find Don't you mind people grinning in your face You know they'll jump you up and down They'll carry you all around and around Just as soon as your back are turned They'll be trying to crush you down Yes, but bow this in mind, a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? Don't mind people grinning in your face. Don't mind people grinning in your face. Oh, Lord, just bow who is in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face?